everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I am Beata Stepanchenko, an associate in the political diligence team at Global Council. And joining me today are Julia Pascali, an associate in the trade practice, and Varshna Shankar, a research analyst also in the trade practice based in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the increasing attention and regulatory efforts to tackle forced labor within supply chains. We're going to try to explain the underlying drivers and challenges that corporates and investors will be facing in due course. Now, we do believe that this is a timely discussion to be having, especially because of the increasing number of regulation and legislation that's coming into play across the EU and the US, as we will touch upon later, the kind of lack of updated forced labor regulation in the UK. Yes, thank you, Berta. And if I can jump in here, I think the reason why we think that this issue is important to discuss today is that we're witnessing an increasing attention from civil society and as a result, also from policymakers to the issue of forced labor, which has led to the adoption of ad hoc legislation in some jurisdictions. And so for now, this has been the case in North America, the EU, and to some extent in the UK, as we will discuss later. But I think it will be interesting to see if and how other countries will step up their efforts to tackle forced labor in the future, as this will have important implications for businesses. In terms of the UK, while it was actually the first countries to implement legislation tackling forced labor through the Modern Slavery Act, it is clear that it has fallen behind in many of its peers, especially in the introduction of effective and impactful legislation. And I know at the moment, a lot of British companies are asking for some kind of legal harmonization to ensure level playing field across all jurisdictions. I do see that corporations are definitely beginning to consider geopolitical concerns and also the social risks of their activities. More recently, this change in approach is best reflected in the corporate justice coalition's uh, urging of the UK government, and they want them to really adopt mandatory human rights and environmental diligence for for businesses and financial institutions. Very interestingly, the coalition believes that these new laws should cover the operations and value chains of all business enterprises and financial institutions based in the UK and include appropriate provisions to hold companies liable if they fail to prevent human rights or environmental harms. A great fact from that research shows that four out of five members of the British public would definitely support a mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence law. In the first instance, let's take a closer look at the US and its approach to tackling the issue. Varsha, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what the policy landscape regarding forced labor in supply chains looks like currently in the US. Thank you, Beata. And yeah, to get into it a little bit on the US side, The U.S. has measures at both the federal and state level that aim to tackle the issue of forced labor in global supply chains. So at the federal level, the primary mechanism is Section 307 of the Tariff Act, which prohibits the import of any product that was produced wholly or in part by forced labor. This law was enacted in 1930 and allows the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, or CBP, to investigate any imports that they believe could be the product of forced labor. 
So if the CBP finds any evidence that the product could be made wholly or in part by forced labor, then they can issue what's called a withhold release order or WRO and can ultimately seize the product if the importer is unable to contest the allegation. At the state level, supply chain transparency legislation exists in California, which passed a law in 2012 requiring large retailers and manufacturers to disclose the efforts that they've taken to prevent human trafficking and slavery in their supply chains. Right now, this is only in place in California, but New York and Washington are also considering similar legislation. However, a notable evolution in U.S. policy toward forced labor in supply chains took place in December 2021 with the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, or UFLPA. As the name of the bill suggests, this policy was enacted in response to widespread state-sponsored forced labor in the Xinjiang region of China. The UFLPA is particularly notable as forced labor legislation goes in that it requires the U.S. CBP to presume that all goods manufactured wholly or even in part in Xinjiang, China, are a product of forced labor unless provided with clear and convincing evidence otherwise. This is called the rebuttal presumption. Thus, the ban not only represents a sweeping use of the Section 307 law on a region-wide basis, but also places the burden of proof on companies to prove that their imports have not been produced with forced labor. Could you more specifically on the UFLPA, um, who is directly impacted? Yeah, so prior policies aimed at curbing forced labor products made in Xinjiang only focused on select goods, such as cotton and tomatoes. But the UFLPA drastically expands the scope of U.S. policy by covering merchandise across all sectors. Moreover, the provision that even products partially made in the region are presumed to be made with forced labor means that the regional impact will go beyond Xinjiang and even China. Even products imported from third countries like Vietnam or Thailand, but that contain inputs from Xinjiang, would be affected by the policy. So the subsequent impact on business is significant, especially given that the law places the burden of proof on them to prove their products have not been made with forced labor. So importers will have to work to comprehensively trace their supply chains, which can be especially tricky when they're working with multiple third-party suppliers across different countries and regions. So given the relative novelty of the law, it is unclear exactly how granular these supply chain tracing efforts will have to be. But nonetheless, it's clear that this will require significant effort from importers to ensure that they are in compliance. What exactly does enforcement of the UFLPA look like so far? And just in, in your own in your own view, what do you think the UFLPA will look like going forward? Yeah, so the current indication from both the CBP and U.S. policymakers is that there will be a strong effort to thoroughly enforce the UFLPA. CBP estimates that enforcing the UFLPA would increase the number of transactions 
subject to review and enforcement from less than 1 million per year to more than 11.5 million per year. They have already requested a $70 million increase in their 2023 budget and have said that they will need to hire 300 additional officers to help with the enforcement of the UFLPA. When considering what enforcement will look like, it is worth noting that the legislation received strong bipartisan support with rare, almost unanimous consent in both the U.S. House and Senate. So the CBP's budget increase to beef up enforcement has likewise been met with bipartisan support. Even with the political support for ensuring implementation, however, the broad scope of merchandise impacted by the ban will undoubtedly cause capacity issues for the CBP. Thank you, Varsha. That was that was very interesting. And um, I think that gave us a good high level insight into the US and their position on forced labor regulation. Now, I was hoping we could maybe move on to the EU. Um, Julia, can you start us off by telling us what the EU proposal for forced labor ban regulation looks like? And how does it even work? Of course. So the EU proposal for a forced labour ban regulation, um, which was tabled by the European Commission in September 2022, so it's quite recent, aims to prohibit the circulation of products linked with forced labour in the internal market, as well as their export from the EU. So it applies both to goods that are produced in the EU as well as to imported goods that are, um, so to say, made available or placed in the single market, um, to use the uh, proposal terms. There are still a lot of unknowns in terms of how it will look like in practice. And um, I think that the proposal will likely change through the legislative process quite a bit, which is uh, normal in, um, in EU policy and EU legislation. But essentially, the draft text envisions a preliminary and a main investiga- investigation phase, during which designated national authorities investigate the potential use of forced labor along the supply chain. And they can do this through different means. So they can rely, for example, on public information and forthcoming commission's guidelines, but, but most importantly, they um, will also be able to collect companies' own due diligence information. Um, Then, in turn, if national authorities establish that there is indeed evidence of forced labor being used, the relevant product needs to be withdrawn and prohibited from the EU market. And I think here it's important to stress that economic operators, which means businesses, manufacturers, um, producers, importers uh, and exporters are the ones that will be responsible both operationally and financially for disposing of the prohibited product. And they can also incur into fines should they fail to do so. Great. And can you tell us a little bit more, how exactly does the EU stance differ from the North American approach that Varsha was telling us? Yes. So there are, I think, two main differences. The first one uh, that we see between the Commission's proposal and the UFLPA is that the former is broader in its scope, as it's not strictly targeted to products imported from Xinjiang, China, but instead covers all products, regardless of their country of origin or sector or company size. It adopts a so-called risk-based approach to determine how to prioritize investigations, taking into account the size, sector, and origin of businesses. Um, And then a second key difference between the EU forced labor ban and its US counterpart is that the former places the burden of proof to find evidence of forced labor on national authorities 
rather than on businesses themselves, uh, as Vasha said. So on one hand, in the EU proposal, it's national competent authorities which have to determine whether or not forced labour has been used by, by collecting the necessary evidence from economic operators and customs, while in the US case, it's assumed that all goods imported from the targeted region are produced with forced labour. In terms of similarities, so I think I'd like to stress that it's not there are not just differences, but again, there are a couple of similar, similarities. So one is, for instance, that both the EU forced labour proposal and the UFLPA adopt a non-discriminatory approach, which means that they cover all products at any stage of the supply chain, from the extraction and harvest to the production and manufacture. And at the same time, both tools also seek to identify high priority products. So for the UFLPA, these are again cotton, tomatoes and solar panels, while the European Commission has said that it will provide more specific guidelines and intense scrutiny on certain industries where risks are, are most concrete. And there, has, there have been discussions already um, about this and we envision uh, textiles and clothing to be um, key sectors that will uh, our focus. And then a second similarity is that while no specific reference is made to China in the EU document, the risk-based enforcement approach um, and the reference in the text to forced labor imposed by state authorities both suggest that the proposal was drafted with an eye towards Beijing. And so we can expect to see an unprecedented scrutiny on Chinese products and supply chains in the EU as well. Thanks, Julia, for setting out the similarities and differences between the two. And I think it would be interesting to know, um, could you tell us a bit more about how uh, businesses and civil society has responded to this? And again, if, if, if you know, um, how have policymakers in the parliament and council responded to this as well? Yes, uh, sure. So I would say that the Commission's proposal I received mixed uh, feedback, um, which I also think it's uh, it's a very standard. Um, so on one hand, MEPs from different political groups, including the Greens, but also the Socialists and Democrats, as well as the more centre Liberal Renew Group, have welcomed the proposed regulation. But they framed it as a solid starting point, which means that you know they've also sort of suggested that it can be improved and in fact criticism on 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 the on the draft has been witnessed across the political spectrum so if we look to the left we have a group of MEPs but also for example NGOs and research institutions that have criticized the proposal for placing the burden of proof on national authorities rather than on businesses as well as for lacking provisions around remediation for victims of forced labor. Conversely, if we look at MEPs from the center-right and pro-business EPP group, they have criticized the proposed measures as being too burdensome for industry and thus risking to negatively impact the EU's economy and its competitiveness. And then a third issue, which I would say is rather bipartisan, is that um, uh, different different MEPs, but also again NGOs, NGOs and uh, research institutes have asked how the proposed regulation on forced labor um, will interplay with the proposal for a corporate sustainability due diligence directive, given that both require businesses to strengthen their due diligence mechanisms. And so, in essence, there is a fear that the two proposed pieces of legislation might duplicate requirements for businesses, and thus, um, again, MEPs from different political groups have asked the Commission to clarify how this will work in practice. And what about you? I'd, I'd like to know, um, you know, do you think the regulation is likely to change? And, and if so, how would that look? Could you maybe give us a, a forward outlook? 
Yes. Uh, so, I mean, it is difficult to say for sure how the final text will look like, but what is clear is that the European Parliament and the Council of the EU have different priorities and uh, will therefore fight hard to lock in key provisions respectively. So on one hand, MEPs have already begun the scrutiny of the proposal and some political groups um, have shown their will to push for more ambitious provisions, particularly, again, as I said, around uh, complaint and remediation procedures for victims, as well as closer engagement with workers and other relevant stakeholders during investigations. Um, Meanwhile, in the Council, uh, where discussions are yet to begin, member states will seek to narrow the proposal's requirements on national and customs authorities, um, while urging the Commission to create a clear and harmonized implementation framework across the single market. The pro-business Swedish presidency of the council, which will start in January 2023, um, I also think will be especially careful to strike the right balance between tackling the issue of forced labor and establishing practical and viable compliance uh, frameworks. So... Seeing as the UK is um, no longer a member of EU, I think it would be interesting to know more about the regulation in the UK. So Beata, as I understand you mentioned that there is a lack of efforts in this space and a real growing demand to act from the public opinion. So in the first instance, could you tell us a bit more about the current legislation in place in the UK? Sure. So, I mean, at the moment, the main legislation in the UK against forced labor is the Modern Slavery Act from 2015, and it holds UK firms to account on poor practices and standards in supply chains. Also, annual reporting mechanisms are supposed to generate transparency in this respect. Now, despite recent political debate suggesting that it is a silver bullet to end forced labor, the Modern Slavery Act does not really place any legally binding standards on companies to undertake efforts to effectively address risks of labor exploitation in their business operations. So actually, in fact, the Modern Slavery Act explicitly states a company may publish a statement that says it has taken no steps to address modern slavery risks during the financial year and yet still be compliant with the law, which obviously defeats the purpose. Okay, that's that's very interesting. So what do you think? Will we see the current government proposing regulation like in the US and in the EU or will it remain a labor battle? So in response to the push of um, major reforms by the EU, as, as, um, as you mentioned previously, Julia, the UK government recently announced that it would not be adopting the so-called CSDDD into UK law. In a letter sent uh, by Lord Callanan, who at the time was the chair of the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee, or otherwise known as BASE, the government sent out its rationale for not adopting uh, the EU directive. And uh, they argued that pre-existing measures in place, some legislative, some voluntary, were actually adequate to meet the due diligence standards required. And furthermore, they argued that all firms with operations in the UA, in the EU would be obliged anyway to meet the CSDDD requirements. Now, the UK approach suggests a more go-alone position. Um, this, you know, you could say is influenced largely by post-Brexit politics. However, it is clear also that this kind of legislation will require a blend of measures that combine strong regulation and sanctions, clear incentives, a collective mission and purpose, 
some sort of leverage of corporate reputations and definitely high quality transparency and data. Although the UK position may seem like a rejection of decisive policymaking by the EU, it's not yet 100% clear whether the EU will be able to deliver an effective blend, might I argue, and whether the UK position will adapt or follow suit. So without a clear legislative framework and lead from the UK government, businesses, you know, I do think face contradictory incentives, even if they want to do the right thing. If they seek to comply with standards set elsewhere, they risk being at a competitive advantage with other less diligent firms. So by not acting, the UK is uh, ultimately ceding the ground in defining what is likely to be a key area of public policy across the world in years to come. It is definitely, in my opinion, a missed opportunity for the UK to fulfill its ambitions to be a global Britain and enhance its presence and impact on the global stage. More recently, um, in the government's announcements of measures over Xinjiang human rights abuses, the UK stopped short of implementing a full ban on trade from this region. However, the Foreign Affairs Committee called on the government to explore a ban on the import of all cotton products known to be produced in the region, and a private member's bill is currently in its second reading in the House of Commons, which seeks to prohibit the import of products made by forced labor in this region by requiring proof that the manufacture of products has not involved forced labor. This is something that we'll definitely be tracking um, and uh, tracking its progression. If I may ask a final question, which I think is helpful to bring us back to the bigger picture is how will these different approaches that we have just discussed will impact businesses operating in these and other jurisdictions? And so if I may um, just say uh, a few points here is that this is an issue that has been raised by different political actors as well as businesses recently, particularly in relation to the different requirements and compliance mechanisms of the UFLPA and the Youth First Labour Ban proposal. And essentially, businesses that are characterized by complex and cross-jurisdictional value chains will face not only increasing operational and administrative costs, but will also be confronted with different and sometimes diverging requirements depending on the jurisdictions in which they operate, which will further increase such costs. So what we would need, in ideally, is a global harmonized approach um, to tackling forced labor. But this is, of course, a difficult political battle to win in some jurisdictions. Um, but however, most recently, there have been some efforts in the EU and the US to cooperate on transatlantic trade and labor issues. And indeed, earlier this week, on the margins of the tr third Trade and Technology Council meeting, UN and US officials held the first ministerial level meeting on uh, of the Trade and Labor Dialogue, uh, the TALD, which essentially is an initiative established earlier this year to discuss a variety of issues in, impacting European and American labor forces. And crucially, this first high-level meeting of the TALD had a strong focus on tackling forced labor, which I think underscores efforts from both sides to at least coordinate on non-regulatory initiatives in this area. So when considering the impact on business operations in the U.S. side, I think the introduction of the rebuttal presumption in the UFLPA um, clearly introduces a much more complicated compliance landscape for businesses. And although American businesses have publicly expressed support for the UFLPA's efforts in combating human rights abuses, they've also raised some specific concerns about a lack of clarity and guidance within the law. 
So we've heard from some companies already that um, some of the detention notices or withhold release orders filed under the UFLPA do not actually specify what specific inputs or entities have caused concern for the CBP. And this lack of clarity makes it really challenging for importers to find a resolution and make sure that they are in compliance with the law. On a practical level, several companies have already initiated comprehensive supply chain reviews in order to make sure that they are in compliance with the broad scope of the UFLPA. So a report from August of this year found that the law has already spurred supply chain shifts since it went into effect in June. Some have gone as far as to suggest that the UFLPA will motivate businesses to consider shifting out of the region completely. But personally, I don't think the likelihood of this is high given the level of prior investments in the region and the overall reliance on manufacturing capabilities in the Southeast Asia region. It's more likely that businesses will engage in efforts to simplify their supply chains and Um, not extract themselves from the region entirely. Further, as CBP enforcement priorities become clearer over time, I think businesses will have a greater understanding of what supply chain shifts, if any, are truly needed on their end. And just lastly, from a UK perspective, whilst, you know, Uh, I've been a bit negative in this conversation on the UK uh, point of view. I do think it's clear that the UK has fallen behind uh, other countries when it comes to compelling companies to take action to tackle forced labor. And, you know, there's definitely a level of urgency in place for the UK to implement something similar to the EU, not only from an ethical standpoint, but clearly from an economic case too. So social responsibility has definitely become a critical consideration for businesses and investors in transactions as new regulations are targeting social issues. And it seems like there is no longer an option for the UK government to stand by and not implement effective measures against human rights violations. By doing so, I feel like the UK indirectly allows for businesses to waive morality and ethical values in exchange for higher profit margins. Now, of course, the element of sovereignty must definitely hold true, but upholding and fulfilling human rights and fundamental freedoms is definitely a global matter. It really should not take um, a backseat in light of geopolitical and economic stability. I think there is definitely a need both nationally and internationally for appropriate regulation to become a more central focus for the UK government. And whilst most EU regulations do not immediately affect UK companies, the regulatory divergence is already challenging cross-border firms and their value chains. In general, human rights or diligence requirements for businesses have boomed all across the world in the past few years. So... We believe that if companies want to get ahead or even survive in the future market, establishing some kind of human rights or diligence process that meets the legal requirements is necessary in the current climate. So just to wrap up, I think we can all agree that organizations and investors seeking to continue trading globally would be definitely well-placed to consider conducting assessments on their supply chains to minimize the risk of potential breaches going forward. Now, whilst I think we have definitely a lot more to discuss on this issue, we do unfortunately have to conclude here. 
Thank you, Julia and Varsha, for such an insightful conversation about the different legislation in place regarding forced labor in such various jurisdictions like the EU, US and the UK. As always, if you, your business or your investments are exposed to forced labor regulation, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for me, uh, Julia and Varsha and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for listening. 